And Advent is one of those, it's just a word that means coming. Something is coming, and it's the advent of something. And we are celebrating in December the coming of the King. We are remembering Jesus um, coming and uh, being here on earth with us. Uh, And you see, as you kind of uh, survey history and you survey, um, you know, the intellectual world and as they think about stuff, you realize that the great battle for our time is really the battle over the history book. what events do we really think happened? And what events are true? And what events can you rely upon? And what events were good? And what events were bad? That is the key one that you see today. How do you view events that have occurred in the past? And most importantly, how will generations in our future view the events that are happening today? You hear people talk about that a lot. You may hear people talking about this idea of being on the right side of history. Well, of course, what's the right side of history for these people? Well, their side, their viewpoint, their perspective, their philosophy. The last thing a lot of people want is to be remembered as the villains of history. It's a powerful tool you can use. If I can make you feel like villains, that in the future, someone will look back and read about your life and see you as a villain in that piece, I could begin to control your behavior, can't I? You don't want to be the villain. You don't want to be read about in history as the people in the past that did all those horrible things. And yet, this is, by and large, the discourse that is happening in our society. It is looking over across history and finding out who are the bad guys and who are the good guys. And Christians, I don't need to tell you, have been painted in the last few decades, not as good guys, but as what? Villains, the bad guys, and man has it rocked a lot of people's faith. It has really gotten under a lot of people's skin because we don't want to be the villains, we want to be the good guys. But the key thing we forget as Christians is that we are on the side of the one who writes history. Not on the side of the the people who write the history books, necessarily, but we are on the side of the one who actually writes the events as they occur, when they are occurring. That is the God on whose side we are a part. I mean, man, in all his pretension and man in his self-importance, believe that they're wise enough to accurately interpret history and to decide who the heroes are and who the villains are. But it's God who scatters the proud. It's God who brings the mighty down from their thrones. Mary says in her song, it is God who sends the rich away empty and it is God who exalts the humble and fills the poor with good things. We are the ones who love God. We love the God who is in the process of transcribing each event of history. And today in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be introduced to this young woman named Mary, an insignificant, seemingly unimportant young woman who everyone now knows her name. The name Mary is synonymous with the mother of God. The woman who was selected for one of the most important tasks ever given to a human being. And as she reflects in her song at the end of the passage that Gary just read for us, she reflects on all the events that transpired for her from the viewpoint of history and God's role within history. And so I want to reflect on our passage today the exact same way that Mary does. What does this mean for history. What does this mean about God? 
And what does this mean for us? Because Christmas is a profound event. And so I want to remind you of three things. The first thing, the arrival of our King. The second thing, the essential work of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing, kingdom advance through the ordinary. Those will all make more sense as we get through it. So we saw at the beginning, as uh, Gary was reading the passage, the, the angel Gabriel presented himself to Mary, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Uh, and betrothal is kind of like a legal contract to be married. It's like an engagement, but with a lot more promises made. In our day and age, I remember I walked out to a beach and I proposed to Beck and I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. But she wasn't entering into a legal contract with me at that time. She was accepting a ring and giving me a promise that yes, I will marry you and I will not leave you on the altar on that day, no matter how much I sweated worrying about it. But it's not like this betrothal. This betrothal was basically already being married, although the ceremony had not happened yet and they were not living together yet. So it was a lot of the legal trappings of marriage. They were pledged to be married. And if someone broke the covenant, this little betrothal that happened, you could be in big trouble. If you were unfaithful to the person you were pledged to be married, it was as the same pretty much as adultery. Now this is quite, uh, you know, this, this is a big deal for Mary. This whole situation is a big deal. Now, we've got to learn a little bit about her. She's a native. She comes from the region of Galilee in this town called Nazareth. Town that we know very well today. But at the time that this was being written, relatively unknown town. A few hundred people lived there. Very, very small town. Uh, it's in the backwaters of Israel. She's not from the fancy places of Israel. She's not from the well-to-do places, nor the prestigious places. But she is in a place surrounded on all sides by Gentiles. She's surrounded in the south by the Samaritans, who the Jews despised, and to the north were all the Roman settlements. And yet in this little pocket of Jewish community, there was a remnant of committed Israelites who kept the law of God and sought to live righteously in an unrighteous world. But that didn't stave off the dark reputation of the place that they lived. Uh, to the Jews, Galilee was the dodgy Jewish place. Kind of like how in Australia, it seems to be always, at least in the eastern coast, the western suburbs that are known as the more dodgy of places. Um, and you could always find in some area that there's always a place that has the reputation for being the wild, untamed, you know, dodgy place. If you live in Brankston, where's the dodgy place? It's Greeter, isn't it? If you live in Maitland, it's Rutherford. If you live in Curry, it's even in the name, Western, right? For some reason, it's always West. Uh, if you live in Cessnock, it's the whole city. But usually, <laughs> the closer you are... <laughs> The closer you are to the beach in Australia, you know, you're in the nicest spots, right? You're in the wealthiest area. In Israel, it's sort of similar, except it's not the beach that's the central po point. It's Jerusalem. The closer you are to Jerusalem, the more likely you are to be better off. Uh, when Jesus shows up in the scene in John 1, Nathaniel, who would become his disciple, hears about Jesus, and hears this Nazarene going around preaching. And what does he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? But what does that tell you about that place? Be like me saying, can anything good come from Rudy Hill or Blacktown, where Gary's from? 
This reputation went all the way back to Isaiah's day. Did you hear Isaiah 9? I read it earlier at the beginning of our passage, uh, beginning of our time together, sorry. Isaiah says this, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so you see, even in Isaiah's day, we see the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is the tribal area that Nazareth falls in, was the dodgy place, Galilee of the nations, or other, other you could translate it as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's got the reputation for being the dark place. And where do, what do we find here? This young lady, Mary. Now, she's named after, in Hebrew, Miriam, the sister of Moses. And we get her name translated as Mary. And this young lady was likely very young, maybe 14 or 15, probably 14. And she was betrothed to be married. She has this legal pledge to marry Joseph, who was only maybe a couple of years her senior, 15, 16, 17. And uh, it was very common for people in these days to get married in their mid-teens. Joseph, for instance, he would have just finished his trade. He would have been skilled. He would be either working in his father's shop or starting his own shop. And uh, he's ready to get married. And Mary has come of age in the Jewish mind, and she is ready to get married. And the key thing is, you couldn't have asked for two more ordinary people, two more standard, run-of-the-mill people that existed at this time. And yet, despite how they appeared externally, both Mary and Joseph were not ordinary because they were of a very old royal bloodline. Now, have you ever wondered if you have descended from royalty? That somewhere along the lines, your great, 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 great grandfather was, you know, like the king of Scotland or the king of Wales. Uh, does Wales have a king back in the day? I don't know. Probably not anymore. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm sure Gary is wondering, you know, what clan did he belong to in Scotland? What chieftain is he the uh, descendant of? Um, well, Mary was like this and Joseph was like this. They were descendants of King David. Now, you, you wouldn't know that they were descendants of King David by looking at them because they didn't have any wealth. They didn't have any prestige. They weren't known as the descendants. No one walked around and going, oh, that's Joseph. That's the descendant of King David. No one was saying that. But they had these genealogies and they had these uh, descriptions. And we see a genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew and we see one in the Gospel of Luke. And our church tradition holds that the one in the Gospel of Luke is the genealogy of Mary. And in that genealogy, we see that she is a descendant of King David. So whether or not it's Joseph, his adoptive father, or Mary, his biological mother, Jesus is a descendant of King David because this is important. It's not just some random thing. God made a promise. And he made a promise a long time ago to King David that a member of his family will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And God is not in the habit of making promises and then changing his mind and going, oh, I've said this thing to you, but I don't really want to do it. God is an unchanging God. And no matter how much time passes, he will prove himself faithful to his word. And so this king, he's not going to be some random baby boy he will be extraordinary. In Isaiah 9, in our passage, it continues down that we read at the beginning of our service. And what does he say? He says, for to us, a child is born. 
to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a passage. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is no ordinary boy, even though he is born to two very ordinary parents in some very ordinary of circumstances. But God is faithful to do, that all, do all the things that he has said throughout the entire pages of Scripture. And what we see in Isaiah 9 is that Christmas ultimately is political, isn't it? He uses very political language. It's not the arrival of a nice messenger. This isn't some enlightened prophet that's going to show us a better way to live or the birth of a religious teacher. Christmas is an advent. It's an arrival. It's a coming of God's chosen king. This has political ramifications, doesn't it? It's not some spiritual thing where we have in our little corner, we do our Jesus stuff, we come and we read our Bibles, we pray, we do our own thing. And then over there in the world where people don't believe and don't trust, oh, it doesn't really matter. They continue in doing the, the, the things that they want to do. But that's not true. What does Isaiah 9 says? It says the government shall be on his shoulder. Of the increase of it, there'll be no end. And that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This kingdom will not be established by the will of men. It's not going to be established uh, when we get enough votes together and we vote Jesus into power. Guess what? He already is in power. We're not voting him in. He already is in. We are recognizing the foundational reality of this universe, and that is that every square inch belongs to this baby conceived in this womb. What power is strong enough to overturn the will of God? Who will accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. And in case you're wondering what that word hosts means, it means armies. It means a great army. The whole point of it is God will invade and take over this world. Can you get more political than that? Can you get more confrontational than that? What rebellious systems can challenge the authority of God? You see across history, no matter how clever the men are that write the stories that you will read, I can tell you one thing that you can guarantee. Kingdoms rise. Empires rise. And what happens to every single one of them? They fall. They fall. Many blasphemous kings have come along and conspired to throw off the restraints of God, and have conspired to create nations after their own image, and have said many blasphemous things about how Christianity will be gone in a hundred years. And yet, we see Christ's kingdom increasing. Of the increase of His kingdom, there will be no end. Now, God warns these kings in Psalm 2, and I would love to do a whole sermon on Psalm 2 because it is a brilliant psalm. But I just want to focus on verses 10 to 12. Listen to what it says here. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, at the beginning of the psalm, they're conspiring together, they're saying, you know, let's cast off our bonds, let's cast off, cast off our restraints. We don't want God to tell us what to do, so we're going to get, uh, we're going to get together and we're going to try to overthrow God. And in this, some, it, they get a warning. No, don't do that. Serve the Lord with fear. Because if you don't, if you don't kiss the son, you will be angry and you will perish in your way. He's effectively saying here, kiss the son lest you get smoked. And God didn't send his son into the world for his mission and his purpose to return void. And we shouldn't expect it to either. Jesus will inherit the nations. And it's not an if, but a when. And we can hear this and go, ah, I don't really know if that's going to happen. Or we can hear this and we can go, oh, great, that's going to happen. I'll just sit back and wait for it to happen. But God works his plans out in history. And we get the choice to be heroes of the peace, villains of the peace. What did Mary do when God, through the angel Gabriel, came and spoke to her? And she had the option in that moment to become a villain, to later become a hero. What do I mean by become a villain? Look what was in front of her. 14 years old, betrothed to a man, about to fall pregnant as a virgin. In a culture that would not have seen too kindly to it. In fact, she could have lost her very life. She had to have a lot of faith in this moment to trust that God was going to make it okay. And she knew that she could be coming, be, you know, she's a godly young girl. She's trying to do what's right. And now she's put in a situation where people are going to see her in a way where she's not doing what's right, where she's completely against the things that she says that she's for. And yet, to do the will of God, she accepts this task before her. And sometimes the matter is, you will, people will tell lies about you. Horrible things might happen to you when you follow God. You might be the villain in the eyes of a lot of people. But the important thing, and the thing that Mary recognizes, is what does God think? Because that is her true position in this tale of history. She's a hero. And we remember her as a hero. She has very few enemies now, but when she lived, yeah, she, some horrible things were said about her. But she relied on the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the next thing that I want to um, point to, my second point, the essential work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Let's keep reading from verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, this interesting little section that happens here, Mary has heard about her relative Elizabeth. And you remember from last week, Elizabeth uh, in her old age has fallen pregnant. And so for Mary, she's probably thinking, Elizabeth's the best person to go to. 
She's going to understand what's going on better than other people because God has done this amazing thing for her. And so uh, Mary, it says, makes haste because she's probably a little freaked out to get there and get a few answers and to get a little bit of help and some encouragement from her older relative, Elizabeth. And she knows Elizabeth is a godly woman. She's married to the, the priest, Zechariah, and she's kind of known her as someone that she can go to. So she goes to her. And as soon as she gives a greeting to Elizabeth, the passage tells us that the baby leaps in her womb. Now that is impressive. Uh, we know that this angel had promised Zechariah that this baby, John the Baptist, would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit from the womb. We saw that last week. So God has already set him aside for a ministry from the womb. Now that's impressive. Now, the thing is, in the Old Testament, when you received the Holy Spirit, you were set aside for ministry. King David received the Holy Spirit so that he could rule well. King Saul received the Holy Spirit so that he would rule well. Even people who worked on the tabernacle received the Holy Spirit so they could work well on the tabernacle. But it's not like we see now where the Holy Spirit has come in a different way and indwells us and you can never um, have the Holy Spirit leave you. But during this time, you could have the Holy Spirit come and go. Jesus himself received the Holy Spirit at the age of 30 when he was baptized and set apart for his ministry. Just like every Christian now is indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we're set aside for ministry. Well, guess what? When was John the Baptist set aside for ministry? From the womb. Now, it's unlikely that John the Baptist had any idea what was going on. But he did this enormous leap. Now, Ladies who have had children before, you know that some babies can do some wild things in the womb. But this was more wild than the normal wild things. This was like, whoa! This is an intense uh, reaction from her baby to Mary. Now, some mothers could think, well, this is just one of the weird things that happens when you're pregnant. I mean, Elizabeth's never been pregnant before, and she's a bit older, so maybe she thinks it's a bit more intense for her. But she herself, Elizabeth, is also filled with the Holy Spirit here. And that's important because she is now competent to interpret what is happening in her womb. She's now competent to know what's going on. It's not just the random movement of a baby. Now that she's filled with the Holy Spirit, she knows that this movement is a little bit more than that. This is the ministry of her baby already pointing to the identity of Christ. So how is God going to use this child to communicate this? Well, the only way the child knows how to communicate at that time, you kick your mom really hard. <laughs> That's how you communicate. And it sounds like this is an intense movement. And how interesting is it that God is accomplishing all these extraordinary things through these really ordinary people? Even here, God is empowering Elizabeth with the Holy Spirit to accurately interpret events happening around her. And she can see clearly that the sign given to her through her baby John is to recognize the privileged position of Mary, her younger relative, who the last time she saw her was only a child, and now she's a young woman. And there's no pretension, there's no envy, there's no dismissal of young Mary, thinking, oh, poor little girl, so unready for this. But she responds with wonder and awe at what God is accomplishing here. She says, the mother of my Lord, See, the Holy Spirit is heavily involved with all the people set aside to do God's work. I mean, God is with us. And He's physically with Mary in her room at that moment, 
But this is also a promise to us. Because when you dive into some, some darkness or when you dive into some obedience that seems like it's going to cost you a lot of things, you can feel like God is saying to you, arms crossed, go and obey me. Why haven't you obeyed me yet? And you're thinking, oh, everything's going to go terrible, but God wants me to obey him. So then I go out and I obey God and everything goes terribly. And I knew it was going to go terribly, but God wanted me to do it. So I did it anyway. And look how terrible everything is. Is that how you feel when something happens and you know that God's calling you to something, but you know that if you do it, it's probably going to go terribly? The temptation is the thing that God isn't going to be there with you that He's not going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, that He's not going to be present with you and comfort you if things do go badly because He knows what's going on. And He doesn't call you into obedience just to ruin your life for some sick fun. That's not how God behaves. And we know that's not how God behaves. And yet, somehow, intuitively, we think that's what's going to happen. We think that we're going to say yes to the plan of God and God's going to say no to everything else and ruin our lives. But at least we said yes to God. That's not what, that's not how God operates. He loves us and he cares for us. And he just asked Mary to do something wild. And she said yes. And he took care of her. He protected her. He gave her many experiences of wonder. And he does that to all who walk faithfully with him. Lean heavily on the Holy Spirit, for without that power that comes from God, we're merely merely just going to be ordinary people destined for the same fate as the rest of the world. And hey, I would rather be an ordinary guy taking part in an extraordinary story. And so if this kingdom is coming into this world and Jesus, we see here, is invading this world to rule it with a rod of iron, how can we expect to see this kingdom here on earth. Well, we're going to see it the same way, similarly, that he's always operated, and that's through ordinary people and ordinary things. My last point, number three, kingdom advanced through the ordinary. And we're going to see now, we're going to read verse 46, and I want you to notice the way that Mary is conceptualizing everything that's happening to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now that is a godly way to reflect on everything that's happening. She knows like in the immediate, people are going to say stuff to her, but what does she say here? She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She knows that she has a bright future. She knows that good things are going to come from this. She knows that all the fear and trepidation are only momentary compared to the surpassing worth of the glory that will be revealed. 
And don't you think it's interesting that when God is bringing about His glory, He chooses the weak and foolish things of the world? Like, He could have come in and chosen some ultra-elite Pharisee or Sadducee who had so much capital and people would trust Him and trust His wife or whatever's going on and He would be able to say, this is what God has done for me and everyone would say, yeah, this guy has got some credibility. I'm going to believe Him. I'm going to trust in Him. He could have chosen some intellectual elite. He could have chosen someone with connections and power. Instead, he chooses these people no one knows about. No one even knows their name. He could have made these influential figures, his heralds and messengers, to bring the arrival of his son to the world. And yet, he chooses this young virgin named Mary and her carpenter fiancé who lived in the middle of nowhere. But there was a promise of the increase of his government shall be no end. Why? Why, little Christian, do you think that God has big things planned for other people, other more important people? Why? Why, little Christian, can God not use you in mighty ways? What sets you apart from all the other people that God has used so mightily? Why, little Christian, do you get so overwhelmed by the raging of sinful men? When God has proved himself a master all across history of smoking them, of getting rid of them. God is capable of taking this young 14-year-old virgin and her 15-year-old fiancé and overturning the entire world and its system. We now know the names of Mary and Joseph. Everyone knows the names, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. And it took a while, but notice what Mary says in her song. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And she knows the way that God's plan unfurls itself throughout history from generation to generation. Mary knows a great deal of shame is going to come upon her for falling pregnant out of wedlock. And yet she looks beyond the shame to see the future generations. She knows how people will view her. She knows her place in history. Do you know your place in history? Or when someone casts you as a villain, does it get to you? Does it destroy you? Do you work overtime to make sure that people don't see you as a villain for fulfilling the word of God? How huge of a thing to look at the pages of history to see all the possible future events that can transpire and know that God is going to be faithful. Generation by generation. Over and over and over again. Has he ever failed? Has too much time passed and he went, ah, that really got away from me. I'm not even going to do it anymore. No, he doesn't think like that. This is the kind of faith that fuels the church. A faith that recognizes that God is faithful all the time, consistently, and over a very long timeline. This is the kind of faith that hopes in the future rather than is miserable at what may come. If Christmas teaches you nothing, let it teach you this. God is faithful with history. He will show up. He will be victorious. There is nothing that can happen that will ultimately harm you. And will do anything to you that will tarnish you. His is a story of victory. 
Mary says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He remembers, He hears, He knows. He spoke these things to the fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And if you find yourself looking at society, looking at our communities, and looking at all our prospects, and wallowing despair, you have forgotten the God aspect of that. You have forgotten the role God plays. You might think, oh, we aren't in an important place for God to take notice. You mean a place like Nazareth? Oh, God can't act through me. Does He know how totally unimpressive I am? Oh, kind of like, you know, the humble estate of Mary and Joseph. Christmas is a time where we look backwards to bolster our courage to look forward. We look back and we see 2,000 years, well, a lot more than that, actually, of God's faithfulness. And if this doesn't light a fire underneath you, if this doesn't give you a sense of positivity towards the future, then I don't know what will. Remember, Christian, that all your small acts of faithfulness, every moment of self-denial, every love, work of love, of mercy, of hard work, all those seemingly insignificant things, they bear a massive harvest later in life. God can use the ordinary to accomplish extraordinary things. And God is a master at magnifying little bits of faithfulness into really big bits of faithfulness. Even the the jobs you don't want to do, like every little diaper change and every little conversation at work. Oh, no one likes those. Every resolved fight, every spanked bottom, every read scripture, every family prayer, every vote, every book you read, all builds up this great household of faith that was established on Christmas Day. So don't be concerned. Don't be so concerned about how sinful men write the history books nor be concerned about the newest intellectual fads or arguments for sin, but make sure that you are actually on the right side of history. And what is that side? The side of Christ. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. In this last section, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray by Your Holy Spirit that You would challenge us that these words would really speak directly to our heart, that we would not see the task laid out before us with a dismal, dour look, but would we be like your servant Mary and would we rejoice in all the things that you can accomplish in the midst of sin and brokenness. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful salvation that you wrought in your son Jesus and the wonderful gift it was for your son to be sent to us, that you yourself would come and dwell among us and bear our sin and die and rise again from the dead. Now, Father, we know that you are king, that you rule over all, that you have assigned your son Jesus to sit at your right hand and for the increase of his government to have no end. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought us underneath his rule, that we have taken refuge in him and that we are blessed for being found in your son. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be found in him. And for all the saints here that are challenged, I pray that you would embolden them, that you would breathe courage into their bones, that they would go back into their lives with a skip in their step, knowing that you are good and faithful and you write the history books and the opinions of sinful men are worthless and meaningless in the grand scheme of history. We love you, Lord, for all that you do and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.